We're continuing this morning in our series we're calling Kingdom and Culture, which is a preaching series where we are tackling the reality that we, as followers of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God, are also citizens and residents of Canada. And that there is a a difference many times between the, the culture that we live in and the culture of the kingdom that Jesus invites us into. Now, just to kind of, you know, work on some simple definitions, when we talk about kingdom or the kingdom of God, we're talking about where God is present and where things are done his way. Where God is present and things are done his way. When we talk about the culture around us, we're talking about the way things are done here. And like you see generationally, like you see regionally, cultures are different. And sometimes there's, there's a rub and there's conflict between culture. Sometimes there are things within culture that you can affirm and say, wow, that, that's actually a picture of the kingdom of God. And we need to be able to have conversations as a church of what it means for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a culture where there may be values that are different, there may be things that we can affirm, there may be things that we need to prophetically speak into where we see the, the harm in the culture around us. But how do we do this in a way that shows the character and dignity of God? We've got some wind chimes going on. What a fun service this morning. This morning we are going to be tackling um, probably one of the more difficult topics that we are going to, uh, to look at today. And it, it does kind of build off what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. But we are going to be looking at the the issue of gender. And, uh, man, I I want you to hear me this morning. If you know me, I want you to know where I'm coming from this morning. Hear my heart in what I'm saying. My desire is for us as Christians to understand the cultural conversations around gender and to be able to have these conversations in a way that is dignifying, that is not dismissive to people and their stories, but still understands how the teaching of Jesus and the Word of God speaks into what we're experiencing. I also want to to let you know this morning that what I'm saying I'm not trying to convince any gender activists this morning. I think it's important for us to understand that much of the conversation around gender, there's, there's a steep divide between, between activists who are advocating uh, ideas and the average person who's just trying to make sense of, of what's going on. The, the person I am speaking to this morning is, is the Christian in the pew trying to make sense of what our culture is saying about gender. I am speaking this morning to the person sitting here questioning who they are and their identity. I'm speaking this morning to the parent who's concerned about what this means for their kids and and how to have conversations with their child. I'm speaking to the person who may be listening online hoping that Jesus might actually have something to say that would give them hope in the midst of the, the ways that they're struggling. This is the tone of our conversation this morning. And I hope we can be on the same page with that. Now, I will not be able to do justice to this topic 
in a sermon on Sunday morning, like any of the other topics that we're talking about. And so there are a couple things that I want to suggest to you. First of all, I want to remind you that we're having our pastor's Q&A forum November 1st here at the Montague site, where myself, Pastor Phil, and Pastor Gordon will be getting together, we'll be answering questions that come in around the topics that we're speaking on. And I want to invite you, if you have questions about what it is that we're talking about or something that I say that you're like, I wish you would clarify that a bit more or questions that you would want us to address, my number is up on the screen. My phone is on silent in my office. You can text a question to that number. It will be answered anonymously at our pastor's Q&A forum November 1st here in Montague. I also want to let you know that your pastoral team has been doing a lot of reading and work preparing for conversations like this. We're not, we're not just kind of coming into this blind, opening up a Word document Monday morning and being like, what am I going to talk about this week? We've been, we've been pouring time into this. And we've, we've found some resources that we've found really helpful in this conversation. And one of them that I want to recommend to you is a book called Embodied by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. And he works... Uh, at the, the Christian Center for uh, Sexuality and Gender. And uh, this book, I think I have it up on the screen, or uh, a slide, that you can recognize it. We, uh, we ordered several copies of this book. Um, we did have one copy in our lobby, but I think someone has already signed it out. Uh, but there will be more copies coming in the next few weeks. If you want to kind of expand your reading on, on this topic, Preston Sprinkle is a phenomenal author in that he, he's committed to understanding what Jesus and, and the scriptures say on this issue, but approaches it with tact and with conversations with gay and trans friends that he has who are, are wrestling through these issues of gender. And so I, I highly commend this book to you uh, and his, his center for, uh, the Christian Center for for gender and sexuality um, is a phenomenal resource. So with that being said, um, here we go. The, the cultural narrative that we have around gender right now is one that is, it, it's a minefield, if, if I'm honest. It, it is an issue where it is difficult to speak on because of the the emotional and political charged nature of the conversation. And so there is immense pushback, uh, immense blowback to, to many people who have conversations on this issue that, that veer from a lot of the cultural narrative that is going on. We also need to understand that the way that our culture is talking about gender has changed dramatically and is changing quickly. And so it is difficult for different aspects of society to keep pace with this conversation. A major area I think that, that's important for us to focus on is the, the distinction that has been made in, in our culture's conversation about gender, the, the distinction between gender and sex, between um, how, how one's expression of who they are can be different from their biological makeup. So you may be born with the, the reproductive organs of a male, but express yourself gender as, as female or, or some other expression. This is a relatively new phenomenon, which 
was news to me as I began diving into it, that first appeared in the writings of a guy named John Money in the 1950s. And John Money was a psychologist from New Zealand where he, he was kind of the, the cutting edge in a lot of, of sex and gender uh, writings and research. And he's really the one who coined the separation of, of gender and sex. And, and it kind of remained in kind of the niche psychological journals at the time until it began to be picked up through the 70s by feminist authors who, who said, you know what, this idea is helpful to our cause because if we can dismantle gender differences, then we can dismantle the inequality between genders, which makes sense if, if you're a feminist author. This idea, however, has not really gained popular understanding until the last couple decades, like easily within my lifetime. And, and, and some of you are still kind of just hearing of this idea of the separation between gender and sex. One of the kind of more uh, popular expressions of this right now is in the gender unicorn uh, teaching tool. And this is a resource that's been created by the Trans Students Education Resource Organization that is, is advocating for, for this to be how our children are taught about gender in schools. And, and kind of the premise of it is that gender and sex are separated in such a way where you have your gender identity, where you express yourself as either male or female, but that might be different than, than your, your reproductive makeup, than the, the chromosome uh, realities of your DNA. And, and so it, it's, it's forwarding and popularizing this idea that you can express yourself in one gender and be uh, physically male or female, which may not align with your gender identity. This is something that stood out to me very interestingly in light of some of our conversations over the last couple weeks. When we've been talking about the idea of identity, and the, the, the idea of, of sex and God's design for sex. When we talk about identity, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how one way that we form our identity is by others ascribing it to us, right? You come from this family, or you grew up in this region, or what have you. And you see that, that mimicked in the, the gender unicorn language where it, it's... Um, about the sex assigned at birth. So it's not about the sex that I am, but, but what is assigned to me. The identity that's given to me by someone else. And then gender identity, which is kind of the other end of the spectrum where we talked about sometimes we develop an identity that is based on who I say that I am. It's either a, a rejection of what someone has handed me and I've created an identity for myself. Now, what we have talked about is the fact that our identity is rooted as human beings created in the image of God, and that will speak into this conversation as we continue. It's also really important for us to understand that culturally, like, it is not one specific ideology around gender that is taking place. It's not a clean-cut issue. We can't just say this is entirely what our culture is saying on this. Because we're seeing splits and, and different thoughts in this area. Particularly, we're, we're starting to notice trends of, of feminist pushback uh, against some of the, the gender and trans activism that is taking place. 
you may remember back in 2015 when Caitlyn Jenner was, was on the cover of, of Glamour magazine and was uh, given the, the, the award of, of Woman of the Year. And, and that made huge news, but was, what was really interesting to me about that was the, the strong feminist backlash against that. To say that, that as women we have been fighting for equality and to be seen for who we are as women and there was, there was immense pushback uh, to this issue. We need to remember that sometimes LGB and T, even though they are often put together in an acronym, there's not always agreement. It's not a monolithic ideology. Something we need to also be mindful in our culture is the reality of the, the, um, the reality of what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria. R-O-G-D. And, and what, this, what this reality is, is the fact that we have many children and youth in our communities who are experiencing an incongruency between their biological sex and who they feel internally that they are. It, it is something that has increased incredibly over the last decades it is, it is something that many schools and organizations are, are struggling to know how to deal with and, and often adopt wholesale some of the ideology of the activists. But we need to, as the church and as people of God, acknowledge that there is a reality of, of teens and children who are really experiencing struggle with understanding who they are of feeling incongruency between their biological sex and their internal sense of self. I want to show you some numbers from uh, an organization in the UK. It's the Tavistock uh, Gender Clinic. And this is the predominant uh, uh, pediatric gender clinic in the United Kingdom. This is the organization that helps children who are experience gender dysphoria kind of work through those issues. And Predominantly, their, their methodology is to prescribe puberty blockers so that they don't, uh, they don't continue through puberty with the, um, the hormones that, that they naturally have until they're able to come to an age of consent where they are, uh, can make decisions of their own uh, gender outcomes. But what we see that, that is startling to me about the, the Tavistock Clinic is that in 2009, there were 54 children and teens who were clients and, and, and used their services. That's not when they started, but, but in 2009, that's when uh, they had 54 students, 54 children or teens as clients. You see just a massive increase in, in the number of of children and teens who have used their services, up until the point in 2019 where they had 2,364 clients that year. It's just, it's an incredibly rapid increase and a, and a phenomenon that we're seeing in our communities that, that often we don't know how to deal with. We need to acknowledge that this is a, an incre of increasing prevalence. And there are plenty of theories of why and how and the sociology of it and all of those things. And that's not my job this morning to unpack all of the sociology. 
but it's important to know that, that, that physicians in the medical community are, are struggling to keep up with the rapid pace of this, of understanding the, the science of, of trying to, um, to work through the, the difficulty of ethical issues in terms of how do, we, how do we help a child who's experiencing this dysphoria? Do we prescribe something that is going to alter the hormones in their body? Do we allow them to go through with uh, particular procedures? It is an inc- a confusing time, a difficult time, and there are a lot of children and teens who are suffering through this issue. As Christians, witnessing the, the cultural narrative and and the reality of what's going on as it relates to gender, particularly in our teens. How do we address this? How are we supposed to think about this? What's our posture? First, I think we do need to push back on the the sex-gender divide idea. Theologically, there is room for us to, 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 to challenge that idea And I think it's important that we do. But also, we need to be a community of Jesus that offers his hope to people who are struggling and battling in this issue. Unfortunately, though, the church has often helped feed the cycle and the narrative of our culture. Man, for, for a long time, the church has enshrined these culturally formed perspectives of what it means to be male and what it means to be female. In a way where we have advocated for a biblical masculinity, so to speak, that is entrenched in the 1950s. Or a biblical femininity that is entrenched in a particular time and place. Where we have fought tooth and nail many times, to say that to be a man means you're a breadwinner who likes sports, that you're a lumberjack who likes cars, you're aggressive, you're strong, you're a leader. And to be a woman means you're a housewife. You're more interested in aesthetics and cosmetics and child-rearing and playing with dolls and being dependent and submissive. And many people have come away from how the church has spoken on this issue and said, well, if I don't fit these categories of what it means to be a man, then then it, it becomes this question of, am I actually a man? We have created stereotypes that have been equated with gender, and the minute you don't fit the stereotype, your gender is called into question. As the church, we bear some responsibility for that. What is biblical masculinity or femininity? Is it the masculinity or femininity of ancient Hebrew nomads? Or of first century Jews? Or of Greek converts living in the Roman Empire? The church needs a better way of talking about I want to propose to you what I'm going to call the kingdom way. 
how, how the kingdom of God and, and the theology that we have been developing over the last couple weeks in what it means to be citizens of his kingdom, for human value and dignity to be founded and grounded in the image of God, and how that speaks into how the church responds to, thinks about, and treats those who are battling with gender identity. First off, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 19 to look at some of the words of Jesus. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees, this this religious group, come up to Jesus and they're challenging him about his theology of divorce. And and they're saying, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now they're coming to him with this like challenge and these expectations of what it meant to be a man in their time. That as a man, you have a right to treat your wife in some ways as property who can be let go and dismissed, liquidated at your disposal. Jesus responds to them speaking about the the ways that their view of what it meant to be a man is actually broken within their culture, but still affirms the reality of male and female. Jesus deconstructs some of the cultural understandings of this is what it means to be a man, but doesn't deconstruct gender itself. We look at the passage He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them, male and female. And for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting back from Genesis 1, which we've been reading over the last couple weeks. Faced with some of the ways that gender has been handled poorly, Jesus doesn't deconstruct it but still affirms maleness and femaleness. Jesus does, however, acknowledge that in the fallen world that we live in, there are those for whom the categories are challenging. If we go down to verse 11, you may remember this passage from last week. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those for whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. In Jesus' affirmation that the Creator made humanity male and female with sexed bodies, Jesus also says, we need to acknowledge there are people in the midst of this fallen world who struggle to fit those categories. He's not creating a third category of male, female, and eunuch, but is saying there's a reality of of people, eunuchs in this situation, who struggle, who struggle in a society that is based around male and female. A eunuch, if you remember from last week, is a person either because of specific birth defects or because of the 
the, the violence of others have been castrated or had some of their sexual organs removed so that they were not a, uh, considered a, a threat to those in power and were often close servants of, of a queen, so to speak, so that she wasn't worried about this servant's sexual advances. Jesus acknowledges that there are those who struggle to see themselves within these categories. So what do we do about this? How do we talk about it? I think there's three things we have to do as Christians. First, we need to affirm the image of God. Second, we need to repent. And thirdly, we need to show hospitality. Genesis 1.27, if, if there is a theme verse for this series for us, it has been this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This beautiful poetic language we see in the creation story. That when God created humanity, it's not just like the rest of the creatures, but there's something unique about human beings as made in God's image to reflect the creator to represent the creator on earth, to rule with the creator over the rest of his creation in the way of the creator. And the way that God chose to create humanity is with sexed bodies, male and female. He created them. The image of God is expressed in male and female. When God chose to reveal himself through his creation as the image of God, he chose to through male and female together. There's something beautiful about the fact that there is not just the asexual humanoid, but we are male and female. And how that gets expressed in a variety of ways. There is something beautiful of the fact that when, when you have a room full of guys who are trying to work together and think through a problem, all of a sudden you bring women into that room, the room is going to be sharper because of it. That male and female, in the unique ways that they are created, show the fullness of the image of God. God has chose chosen to be represented by both male, female, masculine and feminine, father and mother. He created a gendered humanity, and we read in the creation story, he called it good. At the same time, our theology of the image of God reminds us that all of humanity has the dignity of being created in the image of God. Which means we have a burning conviction that every person, regardless of their their gender dysphoria or, or, or struggles with identity, or whether they have transitioned, whether they are a trans activist or hold very different views on gender than we would biblically, are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And so the way that the church ought to treat trans people 
should be one of dignity and respect and acknowledging their full humanity. As Christians, we're also called to live out the image of God. Which means we believe that when God sent his son Jesus as the perfect image of God to live among humanity, he's creating for himself a a new humanity that, that is meant to reflect the reality of its creator all the more clearly. Our job is to live as images of God. How does that speak into issues of our gender? Well, Preston Sprinkle in his book, Embodied, boils it down very simply to the Christian, saying Christian discipleship is oriented toward living out the divine image that God created us to be, and sexed bodies are part of that. For the Christian who is struggling with the reality between their inner self and the physical reality of their sexed body, we often have a culture that is saying you need to align your body to your internal sense of identity. I would argue that the image of God actually tells us the other way around. That we are called to align our inner self with who God created us to be. And I understand that that is a heavy cross to bear for many people. I understand that that is a hard saying to hear for those who are experiencing dysphoria. There are plenty of ways of affirming the humanity and goodness of how God created a human being, acknowledging their dignity, and out of a heart to align themselves with how God has created them, to encourage to live in line with their sexed reality. The church also needs to repent. We need to repent of feeding the loop of alienation and isolation and of causing hurt. We need to repent of being the kind of community that makes jokes and jeers and whispers about trans people. On September 15th, August 15th, we were outside at the waterfront doing our outdoor service. And right after our service, there was a Pride PEI picnic taking place. My prayer that morning was that Christ followers would not be represented 
by demeaning the image of God in people that they might have ideological differences from. I haven't heard any stories, but that was my prayer. The church needs to repent for the ways where we have fed the cycle where we have built up walls of this is what it means to be a man, and if you don't bow hunt, then you're not a man. The church needs to display hospitality. Is there a space in our church for those who are struggling? Are we going to be the kind of community that is a safe space for those who are trying to understand and make sense of who Jesus is, but still struggling with their internal sense of identity and gender. Will we be that place? Will we welcome the one who comes in, regardless of externally or internally how they express themselves? Are we going to be the neighbors that whisper or the neighbors that invite people into our lives. I want to read to you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 9. I loved how he worded this. He said, I have voluntarily become a servant to all Uh, to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. But I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Our task as a community of those who are seeking to follow Jesus is to live lives in a way that point people to Jesus. Invite people to him. Come and see the one who has told me everything I've ever done. And Jesus is going to work in each of us, inviting us to take up our cross and to follow him. The heart of God is one that pursues those who are struggling to fit categories. There's a story in Acts chapter 8 where Philip, who is one of the, the leaders in the early church, he is like this crazy evangelist. He's, he's telling everybody about Jesus. He's going into towns that hated him and, and is telling people of the good news of this, this crucified and risen Messiah. And he has this prompting from the Spirit to go out of the town and notices this Ethiopian eunuch riding in his chariot. This eunuch was was a, a, a servant of the queen of Ethiopia. And he had come to Jerusalem to pay homage. And as he was driving away, he was reading the scroll of Isaiah. And the part of the scroll of Isaiah, which we now have in the book of Isaiah in in our Bibles, 
There's a passage that is, that is talking about God's suffering servant. The one who, who was beaten for our transgression. The one on whom we thought the, the punishment of God was placed. You read Isaiah 53. This beautiful depiction 500 years before Jesus' time of what Jesus would come and do. And as this eunuch is driving along, he reads it. And, and Philip, I don't know how it works, like runs up to the chariot and hops in and speaks with this man. This eunuch. This man who, who doesn't fit the categories as cleanly as everyone would like. And Philip says, what are you reading? And the eunuch says, well, it, it, I'm, I'm reading this scroll from Isaiah, but, but who is this person that Isaiah is talking about? And Philip shares with him, this is talking about Jesus. That, that he died and that, that he rose from the grave. And the eunuch is like, there's water. I'm, I believe. I want to get baptized. Like he has this moment of, of radical realization of who Jesus is. And so Philip baptizes them, him there. Two things about this story that I really want to highlight. First of all, we read explicitly in the text that it is the Spirit of God that led Philip to speak to the eunuch. God was pursuing that eunuch. God wanted to meet him where he is at and offer him the hope that exists in Jesus. And he used Philip to do it. We also read that the eunuch went away glad. And I want, I want to read to you why. Because as the eunuch is driving away, he was reading Isaiah 53. Imagine having this experience of, wow, God is pursuing me. Like, th this one who died for me that I read about in this scroll, Jesus he died for my sin and rose from the grave. And then he scrolls down or flips the page or whatever and, and is faced with Isaiah 54. I want to read to you. My translation is the NIV and other translations may be clearer in this. But Isaiah 54 says, Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child burst into song and shout for joy. You who were never in labor, labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your, curtain, your tent curtains wide and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. This 
is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. Imagine as a person who has never been able to fit the categories. Someone who has no hope of ever having kids or a line or a dynasty in a world where your family lineage is everything. Imagine being someone, yes, you get to be close to the king, but someone has taken something from you in in castrating you to be a eunuch. Imagine the needs and the desires that will just go unmet living as a eunuch. And then having this encounter, not only that is God pursuing me, but He knows me deeply. He knows my longing. He sees me in my barrenness, so to speak, and He offers me something even better. I have reason to rejoice. This is what this table's about. This is why we celebrate this this act of communion. Because Jesus is pursuing people. He's pursuing you and me and our neighbors, however they identify. To the one who struggles with shame of their body, His body was broken for them. To the one who faces isolation and not feeling like they belong, his blood was spilled for their forgiveness and their inclusion in his family. There is good news. There's good news for the one struggling. There's good news for the one just trying to understand all of this. That regardless of the ebbs and flows and the rapid pace of, of how our society is talking about gender in this issue, the God who created them loves them, loves us, made us in his image, and died to bring us into his family. I want to turn your attention to the bread and the, the juice at your table. And if you want to participate in communion this morning, I'd encourage you to take the bread representing Christ's body to break it and to pass a piece to those around you at your table who are participating with you and to eat this in remembrance of Christ's body which is broken for you. And just as Jesus took the cup of wine after the meal and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of him. Jesus, you are our hope. You give us life. You are the perfect image of God. And I pray 
as we're reminded of your body broken and your blood spilled for us, that it would be a recentering thing for us to remember what all this is all about. That we are called to be a community that because of your death and resurrection, because of, of the, the new life you're giving us, we're called to be a community that shows that new life to others that invites others to be part of the family. To see the good news that you offer, particularly to those who are hurting. Jesus, as as people of the cross and the empty tomb, may we be those who are hospitable. Jesus, we do repent of the ways that we have caused harm, how we have alienated. And Jesus, help us to move forward acknowledging and affirming the image of God in all people. It's in your name we pray.